Section 12 of An Explorer in the Air Service. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Asterix. An Explorer in the Air Service by Hiram Bingham. Chapter 12. Training Aviators. The plan for Issoudun was that it should be used chiefly as a place where pilots, already fully trained in the United States, should have a refresher course before being sent to the front. Due to the lack of advanced training planes in the United States, and the fact that it was practically impossible during the continuance of the war for our pilots to do much more than get their preliminary training and acquire their wings before coming to France, it became necessary to develop at Issoudun a complete course in advanced flying and in aerial tactics. This was also made necessary because so many hundreds of cadets had been sent to France without any flying training at all and could secure only preliminary instruction at the French schools or at our own Second Aviation Instruction Center at Tours. The history of the training department shows a marvelous growth. For its details, I am indebted to Lieutenant Thomas Ward, who had been a member of the celebrated First Reserve Aero Squadron, and whose knowledge of the complete story of Issoudun was second to none. Very little flying was done in the fall of 1917. But in December, the records show 1,117 hours of flying for the month, which was increased in January to 2,812, February 3,414, March 4,205, April 7,392. There was a slight falling off in May and June due to various causes chiefly the great difficulty of keeping the Nieuports in commission during the warm, windless days of the late spring. In July, the flying time increased to 9,350 hours, in August to 12,510, falling off in September to 9,562. But under the very able leadership of Captain H. C. Ferguson, breaking all records in October with a total of 17,113 hours for the month. In November, after the armistice was signed, the pressure let down and we flew only 10,041 hours. Captain Ferguson, first as commanding officer of Field 5 and later as officer in charge of flying, showed remarkable ability, determination and initiative. In October and November 1917, there had been a great deal of wet weather, and the clay-covered fields of Issoudun were converted into oceans of mud. Attempts to fly caused much breakage of propellers until Captain Rickenbacker, who acted as engineer officer and was the first student graduated from the school, invented a mudguard which prevented the wheels from throwing mud and stones directly into the propeller. Incidentally, it was quite appropriate that the first graduate of Issoudun should later become the leading American ace. It may be interesting to note at this point that another well-known ace, 
Captain Douglas Campbell was the first assistant officer in charge of training here. The fifth to graduate was Captain Hamilton Coolidge, who had a splendid record at the front, with eight Huns to his credit, when he was killed by a direct hit from an anti-aircraft gun. The seventh graduate was Lieutenant Quentin Roosevelt, who was at one time post quartermaster, supply officer, and transportation officer, and after he had completed his training, took charge of training at Field 7. He had his father's wonderful courage and fine enthusiasm. At the beginning, no definite course of instruction was laid out. Most of the teachers were French pilots who naturally used the ideas then in vogue at the French schools which they had attended. Their methods were better adapted for French than American aviators. The course at Issoudun was not thought out on paper beforehand by a theorist, but was gradually evolved under the most strenuous conditions imaginable, and contained ideas derived from a very considerable number of the best American pilots in France. With a true sense of the importance of having the best possible teachers, and a keen realization of the old adage that a stream cannot rise higher than its source, it was early determined to retain only the very best American pilots for teachers and instructors. Each man that went through the school was jealously watched by those in charge of the work at the different fields, and if they saw unusual qualities in him, he was promptly requisitioned as a member of the staff. Of course, this was very hard on the individual. Occasionally, it worked backward. In one case, an unusually good pilot, knowing that he was being selected as a teacher, deliberately broke the flying rules on the last day of his course in order to spoil his record. He knew that we would not want a man for a teacher who had a bad record in the school, and he thought that he would be sent to the front if he was not good enough for a teacher. He was promptly assigned to an unattractive ground job. Men who did not obey the rules were not wanted at the front. With true American devotion to high ideals, the great majority of the first-class pilots selected as instructors cheerfully gave up the chance of becoming aces themselves in order to perfect the output of the school and thus to help increase the total number of American aces at the front. In order to prevent our self-sacrificing instructors, from getting stale, a few were allowed to take turns in going to the front for a month at a time. This gave them new ideas and new experiences. When they came back to the school, they had the advantage in every case of having successfully brought down one or more Huns. This increased their prestige with their students and let them feel that they had had their chance at a little real action. Occasionally, pilots who had been at the front for six months or more and who were tired out were sent back to the school as teachers those who have been in the teaching profession know that a teacher who is tired is seldom very effective these pilots were no exception to the general rule two or three of them were unusually good but our experience with the majority led us to believe that the best instructors were not those who had become unfitted for duty at the front, but those who had learned the importance of teaching and were glad to take advantage of a few weeks at the front to increase their efficiency in the game for which they were preparing others. 
with such a splendid staff as was gradually built up by following this policy it was only necessary to show each man that his ideas would be welcomed and to allow him to put into practice his own theories of teaching in order to develop a very thorough course of study since it in no way rested on the ideas of a non-flying general staff nor on the preconceived notions of one or two flying officers nor on the arbitrary decision of a small group of outside experts it was most flexible and was constantly undergoing change and improvement the problem of training a pilot who had received his preliminary work on a slow flying caudron was much more difficult than that of one who had been trained on a curtis j n four h no man was kept back by reason of the awkwardness of his fellow-students every pilot was encouraged to go ahead as fast as possible or rather as fast as our supply of the most advanced type of planes permitted in the beginning of his course however it was necessary for the student to remain assigned to a section until he had completed the preliminary groundwork of aerial gunnery and motor instruction and had passed through the course in rouleurs on field one at some of the french schools the rouleurs were especially built penguins which were guaranteed not to fly at issoudun however we were accustomed to use what we could get in this case the best thing available was a moran monoplane from which the ailerons had been taken and which was equipped with a forty to fifty horsepower gnome motor many of the boys who had learned to fly in the states could not understand why they were put on non-flying rulers before being sent up in the air some of them in fact managed to get by field one without really learning what the work there had to teach them later they had to be sent back from one of the advanced fields because they were unable to make proper use of the rudder when taking off taxiing or landing they were finally ready to admit that the rudders of small fast planes designed for successful use in the air when travelling at more than one hundred and twenty miles an hour are not large enough when the plane is going over the ground at only twenty-five to thirty miles an hour the pilot must use his rudder very gently in the air but very roughly on the ground if he does not thoroughly understand handling the small rudder of the fast scout planes it will be almost impossible for him to make them roll straight on the ground most of our advanced planes were short-bodied nieuports equipped with rotary motors as i have already said in speaking of the troubles of our cadets the nieuports were extremely fond of making a violent and unexpected turn on the ground the cheval de bois the lower left wing of the nieuport has a slightly greater angle of incidence than the corresponding wing on the other side this is in order to aid the pilot in overcoming the effect of the torque of the rotary motor it causes the left wing to drag a bit and this makes it more difficult to roll straight on the ground this tendency is still further increased in landing on a field that is not quite level and few french fields were really level if in landing you happen to light on one wheel with greater force than on the other the tendency of the nieuport to turn abruptly and unexpectedly is very marked 
it will readily be seen that it was very necessary for the student to understand thoroughly the use of a small rudder when operating on the ground we found the cranky non-flying clipped monoplanes very useful for this purpose students were also encouraged to study the action of the motor before starting on their first ride and to keep the application of power as steady as possible since the slipstream of air from the propeller acting on the rudder is the force that causes the latter to become effective the student's first trip was straight across the field towards a soldier who was stationed at the far end whose duty it was to help him turn round and to start his motor in case he stalled it as frequently happened the student was not accompanied by a teacher in his wild ride it was the duty of the teacher to watch carefully the cause of any difficulties and observe whether the student was avoiding trouble by going too slow or was really learning to make proper use of the rudder the second trip was made at a higher rate of speed but with the control stick pulled well back and the tail held firmly on the ground when the pilot had succeeded in making a good round trip with the tail skid helping to keep him straight by ploughing through the field he was told to get the tail off the ground for a few rods and then make a landing it was possible to run these buses at about forty miles an hour without having them leave the ground except by leaps and bounds but unless one gave a sharp kick on the rudder and then instantly brought it back to neutral at the psychological moment the tendency to travel in anything but a straight line was made manifest when the student started using the elevators in order to get the tail off the ground he generally began to think less about the importance of instantaneous action on the rudder or he forgot the small size of the field and this spelled trouble i never shall forget my fifth trip across the field when having acquired some confidence in my ability to keep the pesky thing on a straight line i overran the limits of the somewhat restricted area rolled into a ditch and turned upside down there were a number of rules posted on the bulletin board at this field which everyone was supposed to digest before taking his lessons one was do not overshoot the field as you will only crash and will not learn anything obviously students occasionally forgot this rule another was never raise the tail of a machine unless told to do so by an instructor and then only when coming into the wind never with the wind this rule was occasionally disregarded by high-ranking pilots from the regular army who scorned to listen to the instructor and who consequently caused extensive repairs to be made to the unfortunate rouleurs the students confidence in their ability to taxi at a rapid rate was considerably lessened by the number of accidents not serious although quite humiliating which they saw while awaiting their turn it was not uncommon for several of these queer-looking birds to be flat on their backs at the same time after having satisfied the instructors at field one of their ability to use the rudder the students walked over to field two where dual control machines operated by experienced instructors were ready to give them their first experience in actual flying in france on this field we used the twenty-three meter nyapor 
that is to say the total wing surface was twenty three square meters to one accustomed to the curtis j n four the very small lower wings and the absence of perpendicular struts made the ship seem quite fragile the eighty horsepower Leron motor used on these machines had a comparatively short life, forty hours being considered a good average. Once the student learned to handle it, however, he became very fond of this light and relatively quiet French engine. Three or four Lerons acting together did not make as much noise as a single Liberty motor, nor, it should be added, did they produce as much power to one accustomed to the american stationary internal combustion motor like the curtis o x the operation of the french throttle required study and practice the throttle consists of two levers called manettes the motor is fitted with an external mixing chamber or carburetor the mixed gasoline and air being sucked in through the inlet valve by opening the small manette the flow of gas to the jet is regulated the large manette is actually the throttle controlling the mixture of gas and air it was very important for the student to understand the use of both manettes he also had to learn to keep his left hand constantly on them while flying it finally became second nature to him to keep adjusting them so as to make his motor run smoothly his reaction to skipping or popping came to be immediate and instantaneous. We tried to teach the operation of the manettes as thoroughly as possible before the student went to field one. While there, our students got practice in keeping the left hand always on the throttle to prevent its slipping and thereby changing the speed of the propeller. American trained students, having learned to rely on the zenith carburetor of the Curtis engine, found it difficult to learn that the manettes needed constant attention. Furthermore, students from the United States, where the throttle is usually on the right-hand side, and where the importance of using the French type of switch for the magneto had not been emphasized, found it useful to familiarize themselves with those peculiarities while still on the exciting rouleurs. Yet it was difficult to tell whether the student had really taken it all in until he began to fly in the dual control machines. As a matter of fact, many of the students had to be instructed all over again on a motor located for this purpose back of one of the hangars on field two. Even the instructors, however, did not always agree as to the best method of operating the manettes. In order to enable their discussions to be thoroughly understood by all parties, a special set of manettes was fastened to the fireplace in the attractive club room, which had been constructed for the use of instructors on this field by Captain T.C. Knight the commanding officer of fields one and two who was particularly successful in working out the various problems that arose on these fields the length of time which a student had to spend on field two depended entirely on himself and his ability to learn rapidly and to demonstrate his efficiency not only to the instructor to whom he was assigned but also to another first-class pilot known as the tester who gave him his final examination 
if he failed to satisfy the tester that he had mastered the intricacies of flying the twenty-three meter nieuport he was sent back to his instructor for further lessons each instructor was allowed to follow his own ideas to a very considerable extent although all were obliged to ride in the front seat some used the telephone and some found that the students did better when left alone and when they were not trying to listen to the telephone and feel the ship at the same time the twenty-three meter nieuport is not very stable in the air and if the pilot tries to climb too rapidly or fails to nose down when he develops motor trouble the plane quickly stalls and falls sideways generally going into a spin if this occurs near the ground the result is disastrous if at an elevation of six or seven hundred meters it is generally possible to come out of the spin before reaching the ground since most of our students had received their preliminary training with a stationary motor they found it difficult to understand the gyroscopic action of the rotary motor which inclines to pull the nose of the plane down into a spin if it is not held level on a turn in flying the jn4 we used to be told to nose down on the turns so as to avoid losing flying speed this tendency of the curtis trained pilots had to be overcome before it was safe to let them fly with a rotary motor american trained pilots were also inclined to fly with too little rudder i remember receiving a striking lesson from the chief instructor at san diego who was sure i used my rudder too much and consequently made me fly about the field with my feet actually off the rudder bar guiding the machine solely by use of the ailerons one cannot do that with the nieuport twenty three it requires the use of the rudder at all times furthermore the rotary motor makes the technique of a right-hand turn quite different from that of a left-hand turn i mention these matters in some detail because many people found it difficult to understand why after a pilot had earned his wings in the united states it was necessary to give him instruction in a dual control machine in france at times considerable pressure was brought to bear upon us to let the american trained pilots go directly into the fastest and smallest scout planes without giving them the instruction just described we felt that this would be in some cases inexcusable homicide on the other hand some of the men who were born pilots needed less than an hour's instruction on fields one and two before they were able to go on to field three after the pilot had satisfied the instructor and the tester that he could take his nieuport off the ground in the desired direction without having it turn away from the wind that he knew how to climb on his first turn throttle his motor down so as to secure maximum efficiency in level flight make his turns without losing any elevation avoid skidding caused by too much rudder and too little bank avoid slipping caused by too little rudder and too much bank make three-point landings with the wheels and the tail skid hitting at the same moment and by the proper use of his rudder overcome the tendency of the nieuport to cheval he was given a card that admitted him to field three 
at field three he found a twenty-three meter nyapor not fitted with dual controls but intended for solo flying the absence of the instructor in the front seat not only made the machine lighter and enabled it to leave the ground more quickly and climb faster but also had a psychological effect in making the pilot realize that he had no one but himself to depend upon this ship is an excellent machine to use in carrying single passengers and landing in small fields it does not glide far and therefore does not cause the embarrassments that occur when using the dh4 however it has a very considerable tendency to make violent turns while gaining flying speed and before leaving the ground furthermore it is not easy to keep it rolling smoothly in a straight line when you land nevertheless after overcoming the effects of two bad crashes in this cranky little ship i became very fond of it personally and used it almost entirely when inspecting from the air during the last three months of my stay in france although i should have preferred an average the work at field three consisted of making the student as familiar as possible with the Nieuport 23 and giving him plenty of confidence he was required to make a sufficient number of landings to overcome his dread of unexpected turns his air work was carefully watched to make sure that he was equally good on both left hand and right hand turns he was required to make spiral turns of more than 45 degrees to determine whether he was able to use his elevators as a rudder and his rudders as an elevator when banking over to that extent his instruction in cross-country flying depended to a certain extent on what kind of planes we had at various times the 15 meter nyapor the 18 meter and the 23 meter were used for this purpose depending on the number of ships in commission the course was designed to familiarize the pilot with the difference between flying over france and flying over the united states most of our fields in america were so located that any one with average intelligence could find his way back to the field without the use of a map or if required to use a map would be left in no doubt whatever as to his whereabouts in france however with its large number of small towns and villages that looked very much alike from the air its great number of straight white roads leading in every direction its crazy quilt design of small cultivated fields bewildering in their similarity and complexity the chance of getting lost in the air even while using one of the excellent french maps was very considerable the shape of the forested areas was the most important thing to learn our pilots were fond of telling the story of a champion cross-country flyer from the united states who had never had any difficulty with map reading and who scoffed at the idea that it was necessary for him to learn anything additional in this subject at Issoudun, getting totally lost on his first cross-country flight. He flew until obliged to land because he was out of gas. He finally had to telephone from some distant point to have somebody come and rescue him. In the United States, he had flown by roads and large rivers. In France, there were too many of the first and too few of the second 
In addition to this cross-country work at Field 3, students were given an hour or so with an acrobacy instructor in one of our few avros. The student was put into all sorts of strange positions in the air to test his air sense, to give him confidence in the ability of a plane to right itself when certain definite rules were followed, and to determine whether there was anything radically wrong with his power to overcome dizziness and keep his head level under trying circumstances. If the instructor found a pilot deficient at this point, he was sent over to the hospital to consult the medical research board. Advanced physical tests sometimes showed that the pilot was not fully competent and should never have been passed for training as an aviator. While undergoing their instruction in motors and in the work on fields 1, 2 and 3, the pilots lived in the main barracks near the guardhouse. After graduating successfully from field 3, they were sent over to field 9, several miles to the westward, for further instruction. This field, under the careful oversight of Lieutenant Molson and Captain Oliver, was equipped with 18-meter neopores, that is, the wings measured 18 square meters in area. In 1915 and 1916, this machine had been very popular at the front. It was faster than the 23-meter, but was less able to glide slowly and therefore had to be landed at a higher speed and required more skillful handling. The general appearance was similar, although the upper wings were smaller. The struts of the 23-meter have an outward slope, while those of the 18-meter are vertical. While the 23-metre was far more delicate to handle than the JN4 or the Caudron, the 18-metre was still more so. The motor was the same as that used in the 23-metre. Since these ships were not adapted to taking up passengers, all instruction had to be given from the ground. It included lectures, partly in the nature of repetition in regard to the use of the rotary motor, partly in regard to field requirements and traffic signals, and as to the necessity of keeping in good physical condition. The work on the flying field was divided into three parts, a landing class in which the student received opportunity to make from 10 to 30 landings, a spiral class in which he made all kinds of turns, including what are known as tight spirals, where the wings are practically at an angle of 90 degrees for part of the turn, and an airwork class. The instructors watched the students through field glasses, and later explained to them the nature of their mistakes. If it was found that a student did not readily accustom himself to the more delicate and speedier type of ship, he was advised to go in for reconnaissance or bombing piloting, rather than to continue the course in pursuit and combat flying. Just as certain athletes are more skillful as acrobats and gymnasts than others, so some pilots seem to be better adapted for the more spectacular, though no more useful, work of pursuit and combat. Due to its exciting character, we found great difficulty in persuading young pilots to abandon their ambitions and learn to be good reconnaissance pilots. It requires great skill, unusual courage, and plenty of grey matter to make a good reconnaissance pilot, 
but it is not necessary that one should be a first-class acrobat it makes less of an appeal to the average boy as a result of the airwork and spiral class on field nine the men who showed less ability in rapid and delicate manoeuvre as acrobats were taken out and sent over to field ten which was equipped with dh four planes and where a special course was arranged to train pilots for observation squadrons those pilots who satisfied their instructor of their ability as acrobats however passed from field nine to fields four five and six and took up their lodgings at field five end of section twelve